welcome to the Assembling Inclusion podcast. On this show, we feature different programs, individuals, and initiatives focused on being more inclusive of individual needs. We invite you to learn right alongside us. If you want some additional resources or access to our courses, please visit our website or follow us on social media. But for right now, let's get right to the episode. Birding is an outdoor, nature-focused activity that involves the act of watching birds in their natural habitats. This outdoor hobby is more popular than you may realize. The most recent study by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said there are around 45 million Americans who are birders, a figure that has grown since the COVID-19 pandemic. Since this hobby and activity is extremely common, it's important for us to discuss disability and inclusion and accessibility within this space. Today, we're talking to Freya McGregor, who started the organization Access Birding. Freya has demonstrated a commitment to ensuring that birding is accessible for all people. Within Access Birding, she provides consulting services with outdoor organizations to ensure that all aspects of their programming, trails, signs, and other elements are accessible. She is also working on a book related to accessible birding in the United States and has done research in this space as well. As a lover of all things outdoors, this conversation was really interesting and provided me with some new perspectives to consider, especially with regard to the activity of birding. I hope you'll learn a lot from it too. So let's dive right in. Hello and welcome back to the Assembly Inclusion podcast. Today, we're going to be talking all about improving access and inclusion within birding with Freya McGregor. Freya provides consulting and training services through her business, Access Birding, and that's what we're going to talk all about today. So Freya, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. I am too. And before we get started talking about Access Birding and everything that goes along with that, I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background for our listeners so we can get to know you a little bit more. My name's Freya. My pronouns are she, her. I'm an occupational therapist. My clinical background is in blindness and low vision services. I'm originally from Australia, but I fell in love with an American soldier. And so I've been living in the US for the last few years and I'm a military spouse and I'm a disabled birder. And it's really quite amazing that I've managed to combine my clinical background and the the way my OT brain works with a hobby that I love and personal experience that I have to help make a really cool hobby and access to nature, which really should be a basic human right, more achievable for for many folks with different disabilities and other access challenges. That's great. And I, that was one of the things that drew me to your company in general. I, I hadn't thought about inclusive bird watching and birding in general. And I was like, this is something really interesting. And we really need to make sure we cover it. So I assume that your background and experience probably served as the inspiration for starting Access Birding, but I wanted to know a little bit more about like what actually led you down the path to create the company. Sure. A few fortuitous things. A couple of years ago, I co-founded the nonprofit Birdability, which is all about sharing the joys of birding with people who have disabilities. And I was the sole employee and led the organization for the first 18 months of its existence, which was really amazing work because I was working directly with disabled birders and the birding community, particularly in the US, has this really amazing 
community infrastructure. There's more than 450 Audubon chapters and lots and lots of bird clubs and state birding organizations, not to mention nature centers and things like that. So there were lots of no, other nonprofits and agencies really interested in this work. And so I left that job a year ago at, at Birdability. Lots of agencies and, and other organizations had reached out and asked if I could help them know what to do to improve the trails to make them more accessible or their programs. And I did a little bit of that there. And I felt very confident doing that because, you know, home visits and home modifications are something that occupational therapists do, creating recommendations to improve participation and independence in living at home. But it wasn't really the focus of the organization. So I started Access Birding to kind of complement that mission and, and apply my OT brain in a different way, but in the same space. I also am a part-time research associate at Virginia Tech, and I'm involved remotely. I don't live in Virginia, but I'm involved in projects related to access, inclusion, disability, birding, and using birding as a therapeutic tool, which is really cool because this all intersects with my work and my background and my interests. And, you know, occupational therapy is supposed to be an evidence-based practice, and there is very little evidence around disability and birding. So that's really awesome. And then the other thing that I'm involved in is I'm writing a book for Princeton University Press called, or tentatively called, A Field Guide to Accessible Birding in the United States. And it's a really fun, really massive project um, trying to visit and review three really great birding sites in, in every state in the US. There's lots of bird finding guides around, but the most information out there about natural spaces has, they don't have enough information for many disabled folks around the key access features that many of us rely on. And so this will be the first bird finding guide written by a disabled birder for disabled birders. So that's super cool. And so being my own boss means that I have the flexibility to, you know, change hats in any given day. And just before uh, we started recording, I was working on a review of a place I visited last week. Uh, and right before that, I was re reviewing a manuscript at Virginia Tech. Being my own boss gives me that flexibility to have my fingers in many pies. <laughs> <laughs> And I love how there is so much intersection between your interests, your background, your experiences. They all kind of come together within right. Access Birding, which is really cool. And I love the book. That's awesome that you're going to so it's three different places in each state. Well, I'm going to more than three because roughly my average is about every second place is like book worthy and every other place is like, uh, no, but <laughs> I mean, there's only so much information available online, which is half the problem. And so if, if all this information was available online, the book wouldn't really need to exist. But despite my best efforts at being really choosy about where I go on these trips, because they're incredibly time consuming, I'm about 50%. So I'm definitely visiting more than three, but only three will be included in the book. <laughs> <laughs> that, makes, that makes sense. I'm sure that's a very time consuming process on top of everything else that you're doing. Yeah. And it's such a privilege to be able to work in this space where it almost doesn't feel like work you know it's it's something that I'm, I'm so passionate about and I really enjoy all of these different ways of using my skills and my experience and my ideas and it, it becomes a dilemma with the work-life balance issue <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm sure it's hard to find that balance especially with something that, that brings you so much joy it can be hard to separate I, right. I know that all too well <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I know you had mentioned 
in that there are different barriers that birders with a disability can experience when trying to bird. First of all, I didn't realize there are that many birders out there in the, in the U.S. specifically. I, fi- I figured there was a lot, but when you mentioned how many chapters and organizations there were, I was like, wow, that's even more than I thought. But what are some of the common barriers that someone might experience when they're trying to engage in birding that you typically might support or, or acknowledge when working with an organization? I mean, the biggest barrier seems to be lack of access to information. Like I've just described, there's very often limited or no information available online or, you know, even at the trailhead. And birding doesn't have to be done on a trail, by the way. There's lots of different ways of birding, which is why it's so inherently accessible and because it's so modifiable. But lots of people like hiking or walking down a trail or wheeling and places will say this is a moderately easy trail, like as as if that's enough information for anyone to make an informed decision about whether that's a trail that's worth them tackling or not. And that's just so arbitrary and not really that helpful. Like, I guess I'm not going to be like strenuously climbing a mountain, but like, what does that actually mean? Like, that's so subjective. So really good access information about trails has typical and maximum gradient, like how steep it is, how wide it is, what the surface type is, and if that changes, you know, things like that, where people using mobility devices, people who are a bit worried about, of course, you can turn around at any time, but a lot of people want to complete a trail. Like they want to go all the way to the end or or all the way around the loop or whatever it is. And so that information can be really important. It's kind of key for all of us. That should be available for all trails. That's true. I'm a hiker. So I know that problem all too well. I'll say easy, medium, hard. And I'm like, for whom? Like what, what, for, for what? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's very subjective. I'm like, well, what's easy? They never tell you what the gradient changes. And I'm like, okay, it's moderate. All right. But then you're scaling up the other side of a mountain and you're like, well, this isn't exactly moderate anymore. Right. <laughs> is me. that moderate for like ultra marathon runner? Or is that <laughs> moderate for someone with chronic fatigue? Like what moderate for whom? And my favorite is moderately strenuous. That's my favorite description. Like really, like what does that mean? that is something that impacts I think everybody across the board yet those are very subjective difficulty ratings so that makes it very challenging (laughs) right right give us concrete information we can use that vague generalizations like moderately strenuous really are not that helpful much better to describe the terrain am I scrambling over rocks or is it flat the whole time it's good to know and nobody ever tells you that information until you get out there and see it which is unfortunate so it's great that you're doing that work to kind of support that a little bit. So you do consulting through mm-hmm. access birding. Do you work with different parks, organizations, nature mm-hmm. centers? So how do you typically collaborate with these organizations to make recommendations for them? Well, leaning on my occupational therapy background, it's client-centered. It depends what they're after. I can have all kinds of ideas, but if they're not interested in them, it's not very helpful, right? So a lot of times organizations want to be more inclusive and accessible, but they really just don't know the best way to do that. And disability is so stigmatized and there's very little information out there. Sometimes it's even as simple as like a two hour Zoom and we just talk through their ideas and they just have questions about which would be best. And I can explain why one thing is better than the alternative and why that matters and who it matters to. And I think with this work around access and inclusion, but but maybe in general as humans, I think we're better at 
making a change or implementing something when we understand why it's relevant, not just being told, like, do this thing. You're like, why? Who cares? You know, oh, well, it's for these folks and this is why. Oh, oh, okay. My aunt experienced a similar issue. Like, now I care. Sometimes it's like that. In September, I'll be working uh, for a three-week intensive, a big project with a big land trust in Pennsylvania and they have multiple preserves and 21 miles of trails and I'm going to be there for three whole weeks full-time working with them on describing their trails in a way that's actually helpful for people to use on their websites and signage and things as well as making concrete recommendations for improving access and I'm facilitating uh, an advisory council of some local folks with disabilities in that area and seeking their input and developing a survey for more of their supporters and and stakeholders so it's quite broad but that sort of makes sense from an OT perspective so there's lots of different ways that I can work with people and, and that's fun for me because that's what some of what is appealing about being an occupational therapist every day is different it depends on who you're working with and what they're after. No, that's a great point. And that makes a lot of sense that you want to be able to tailor that experience to whatever the organization needs from all the way from, like you said, the Zoom webinars to the more intensive multi-week projects. It's, it's not necessarily just trails either. I'm, I'm sort of emphasizing trails here a lot, but, you know, programs, there's lots of interpretive programs or education programs that nature centers and other organizations might be holding. And maybe they'd like me to sit in on their third grade program and consult with them afterwards about what they might consider modifying. Maybe it's the materials they're using or the physical space they're holding it in, or even the positioning of the instructor relative to the attendees or the language choices that are being used so that they can make sure that this program is as accessible and inclusive as possible for the broadest number of attendees. Because, you know, Again, folks are trying, but they don't necessarily know exactly what the best thing is to do. So program consulting is something that I also do as well. That makes sense too. I'm sure a lot of those organizations are running programs, especially for either from adults down to children. I'm sure that there's different nature-based programs going on. So that's great that they're trying to make the effort to make those changes so that more people can feel included within those programs. You also run workshops, right? Is that correct? So what types of sessions do you typically run? Again, it depends. I'm just about to run a full day workshop in Oregon. Another land trust partnering with the local Arboretum are hosting me for their staff, their volunteers, interpretive staff, management staff. And it's going to cover a whole lot of stuff from how you determine what access features are important in birding locations for disabled folks from that all the way to how you write up the description for bird outing in a way that's got actually useful information that's not just skimming the surface. And we're going to talk about disability etiquette in the context of birding in the outdoors. We're, we're also going to talk about general inclusion kind of principles. A lot of people hold multiple historically marginalized identities. So if we're just focusing on, say, white, straight, cisgender, disabled birders, we're not really working to include disabled birders. We're only working to include some disabled birders. And so, you know, this work needs to include queer inclusion and BIPOC inclusion too. And so we'll be having a session on just some general stuff like sharing your pronouns when you introduce yourself. I'm white, so I'm not the person to be educating on anti-racism, but 
it's going to come up. Like this is a thing you need to be thinking about. That's not the focus of my work. And again, I, I, I don't think I'm the perfect person to, to really be a, a solid anti-racism <laughs> educator, but I can help prompt that conversation to begin. I did a much abbreviated workshop that covered some of those things online um, a few months ago for the Idea Centre for Public Gardens. And that was a really amazing cohort that public executive directors and board presidents and staff from 20 public gardens and arboreta and like local parks were part of and they were learning all kinds of really really awesome stuff and they asked me to to do a, a two-hour online workshop about this kind of thing so it, it really just depends on, on what folks are after and that's a lot of different examples too that really shows the wide variety that you do for the people that you're working with and also the fact that you can be online you can be virtual and still give them the same information which I always appreciate because that makes everything more accessible too because you have the right. option of how you want to learn it <laughs> yeah and as an occupational therapist sometimes we can change the physical environment and the social and cultural and institutional environments and teach new skills to the person or the people around them this is teaching people new skills in the hopes of slightly changing the social and cultural and maybe even the institutional environments to support disabled birders having more access and feeling more included in this activity. So it makes sense to me that I would offer this, you know? Oh yeah, definitely. You want to have as many options as you can to get that message and those ideas out there. That definitely makes sense. So I did want to ask, you know, obviously you're working with different clients and things like that, but what are some examples of, I don't want to say finished products because something's never really finished, but maybe some organizations that have taken some of your advice and your guidelines and really ran with it and they've seen success from implementing the, some of the strategies? That's a good question. I worked with a local um, wetland centre in Georgia a while ago and the conservation manager who basically runs this nature centre had me come out and provide recommendations for the trails and for their programming. And she took that and just like, she was so on it. <laughs> She wrote up for a grant, was awarded this grant. She's sought training for her staff. They've got an Action Tracks wheelchair, which is a big kind of off-road wheelchair because some of their trails, it just wouldn't be feasible to make them more accessible. You know, I'm not advocating for every single trail to be accessible. That's not the point. The point is, of the ones that could be, is there ways to improve them? That's what I'm interested in. Not not making everything, you know, flat and paved. Like that's not the point. And also not everyone with a disability needs or wants that for that matter. But anyhow, they have a pretty steep, rugged trail system beyond the boardwalk through the wetlands. And so this all-terrain wheelchair is a really interesting way of inviting folks to get out there that they might not otherwise be able to do without this really cool piece of adaptive equipment. But that's not the answer. There's also work needing to be done around improving the boardwalk. And she's doing all that with this grant. Recently, she sent me a video that she had more grant money to create these immersive interpretive experiences, leaning on some of the human stories of that part of Georgia, including lots of Black folks formerly enslaved and and then folks who were free and, and farmed on this land and telling these stories. So she sent me the video and was a bit concerned about some of the subtitles, how they'd been added and where they'd been added and a few really interesting video conventions that the video creators had applied. So I spent an hour and a half watching this five-minute video <laughs> a few times and writing up really clear 
recommendations and why they're relevant so that she understands what I'm recommending and then can pass that straight to the the producers and and they can adjust accordingly. So I'm not a video creator, but I know how to analyze a task and apply clinical reasoning to make it make sense. I know she's going to be doing more and more and more in this space because she's just so passionate about equity in, in nature and in their programming. So that's been really awesome to watch and and what makes me really happy, it's one thing to provide advice, but it's up to the organization to take it. And maybe they'll apply some of it. Maybe they won't apply much of it. Maybe they'll apply it, modify it. But she's just <laughs> kicking all the goals. <laughs> <laughs> she hit the ground running and just went for it. That's great, though. She's consulting with you on so many different factors. It's, it's always nice to hear when people are so like invested in really right. doing the work in so many different areas of what they're working on. Like That's really incredible to hear about. For sure. Yeah. So this is kind of a broad question, but I know your website has a lot of positive testimonials about the work that you've done with different organizations and making birding accessible and inclusive. But what do you personally think have been the biggest successes so far from access birding and your work? I think raising awareness is the biggest success, right? This has been a conversation that hasn't really happened until the last couple of years when I sort of started pushing and started, you know, creating programs and creating conversation around this. And in the context of Black Birders Week, the first Black Birders Week, which was incredibly powerful in um, early June 2020, and there's been a couple of years of Let's Go Birding Together, which is an initiative that National Audubon has in June to coincide with Pride Month, trying to make sure that there are birding opportunities that are safe spaces for queer folks. In my head, there's a lot of overlap between BIPOC birders, queer birders and disabled birders. And definitely each community has their own access needs, but there's also a lot that's really in common. And it just makes sense to me that we should be doing what we can because not everybody can just go birding and feel safe and feel comfortable and access whatever they want to access out in that natural space. And so... The visibility that I have been able to create with the help of a lot of other disabled birders too, just it's been amazing how how many people have sort of gathered and been like, this is really important. And that's caught the attention of lots of these other organizations and big organizations in birding and, and the outdoors too. And so it's really cool. And another thing that makes me really happy is a lot of discussion around the outdoors and outdoor activities very often doesn't include birding. It includes hiking and kayaking and rock climbing and things like that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. I love doing those things. But birding, because it's so modifiable, it, it seems like a real shame to miss out on including this hobby in that broader conversation because folks who might not be able to get out kayaking or can only do it if you know certain criteria are met or, or something like that might be able to get a lot out of birding by going to the local park and just sitting on a bench and and it maybe is less expensive and less time consuming and less less effort maybe and, and maybe it'll bring them just as much or a different kind of of joy that that they're seeking out in nature so raising awareness of birding in general as a really accessible activity and then the importance of being inclusive of disabled birders who are often left out of the conversation in the equity space and the diversity space. I think that's the biggest achievement that, I, that I've had. And the effects of, of that umbrella achievement have been 
really awesome to see. And I can't attribute it all to me for sure, but I'm proud to be part of this shift. And I, I think those are really great points. I hear a lot in a lot of these conversations about the intersections of identity that coincide with disability. So I appreciate that that's been part of the discussion too, the intersection between different identities within disability and things like that. But then also you're right about the outdoors, not referencing birding enough. You mentioned how many birders there are. So the statistics from the US Fish and Wildlife Service from 2016, which is outtdated now, was 45 million birders in the US. Wow. Like that's that's a lot of sad then that they're not mentioning it. big part of the population right and that number has only increased because we know this there's other data that supports this particularly during the early days of the pandemic when all these people were at home and started noticing these bright cheerful creatures just outside their window there's metrics that tell us that more and more people have engaged with this activity since then why is such a popular outdoor it doesn't have to be outdoors by the way virtual birding is a thing birding from inside is a thing but associated with the outdoors activity often isn't in the broader outdoor conversations it it doesn't make sense to me no that doesn't that doesn't Uh, you're right because like I am into outdoor activities like they talk about you know you can go hiking you can go kayaking you can go scale this mountain I, I never hear people talk about birding which is sad considering that's a pretty high statistic I'm very surprised at how accessible it is. And talk about intersections. You can intersect the activities too, right? If you're outside, there's probably birds around. So you could be primarily out there to go paddling or primarily out there on a hike. But if you have tuned into birds, even just a little bit, you'll probably catch up with some birds on your paddle and get another layer of enjoyment out of the paddling experience. So why wouldn't you want to enjoy birds, you know? (laughs) No, that's true. And it's, it, it goes back to what you said about it's, it's such an adaptable activity. Right. There's so many ways you could mix and match it to make it work with your lifestyle, with your needs, with your schedule. Watch this space. We'll see if we can change that. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to have my eye on it. See, now I'm going to keep listening out for it. So, <laughs> so I know that you had, and this is, goes back to you, you had hosted a webinar recently and I say recently, but I was looking at this a while ago. So I don't remember what actually date it was. That was containing information about optics and mounts and accessible power wheelchair users, which I noticed was a little different from like some of the other resources I had seen on your website. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. So I had a doctorate of occupational therapy student with me for his final capstone project, which is three months full-time after he's completed all his coursework and field work. It's the last thing they have to do before they graduate. And Adaptive equipment is a really occupational therapy thing and therefore something that I'm interested in because if we have more knowledge of what equipment can support participation in birding, we inherently make birding a little bit more accessible. And so Alex, my student, and I conducted this research project with uh, four birders who use power wheelchairs. And we know other birders who use wheelchairs, manual or, or power, who have mounts on their wheelchairs that hold up like a spotting scope or a monocular, which is like half of a binocular. It's just like one (laughs) eyepiece that's small. And and there isn't anything on the market that's made specifically for this purpose. There's lots of mounts that hold up tablets and things like that, but not something as heavy and not something that needs to be as stable as an optic. So we had a whole lot of different mounts that, as far as we could tell from photos, might hopefully (laughs) do a good job at this. And we had quite a few different binoculars and 
monoculars to trial with these folks. And it was really, really cool because we got a lot of really valuable information that optics manufacturers can apply to future designs, as well as hopefully someone out there will want to manufacture a mount for this purpose because I mean, this would be a great thing, right? Many nature centers and national wildlife refuges and state parks have loaner binoculars that anyone can borrow. And it's awesome. I mean, I've used loaner binoculars. Lots of people haven't used binoculars before or can't afford them, or there's all kinds of reasons. And what a cool thing it would be to have a mount and a, a monocular or a small scope that someone could borrow and attach to their wheelchair. This research hasn't been published yet, but it, it will be. I've done a couple of episodes talking about like wheelchair functions. We talked about the tablet mounting and things like that, but that's so that's interesting to have like, a scope to be able to see. Yeah, a lot of birders use spotting scopes, which are sort of like telescopes, but because the magnification is so strong, you mount them on a tripod so that they're stable when you look through them. Otherwise, if you handheld them, there would be some shake and it would be hard to focus because they're so magnified. And so binoculars are one thing, but trying to maneuver in a wheelchair up to a tripod can be really difficult because there's only so much space and if you knock it over these scopes are really like a couple thousand dollars kind of expensive and if you're in a group on a bird organized bird outing the height that you'll need to look through that scope will be a different height than all the standing people and so being able to have a decent optic mounted on your wheelchair that you can just use that's just at your height and you don't have to figure out this tripod scenario you don't need a scope to be a birder binoculars are great in fact you don't even need binoculars to be a birder if you're enjoying birds as far as i'm concerned you're a birder but for folks who do want that having a mount is just going to make that that much easier it makes it more accessible it's a great point it's not a required tool but like if you're really invested in it and you want to go that route like you should have an accessible avenue to have that type of resource available to you if all the standing people can get it there should be like a modification right Yes, (laughs) exactly, exactly. There needs to be a modification for it. I'm glad you told us a little bit about that. So my last question for you is just kind of looking ahead, what are some future goals or aspirations that you have for access birding? Is there anything specific that you have coming up that you wanted to share or just any kind of overall large scale goals that you're hoping for for the future? I'm looking forward to developing training that is not specific to an organization that folks could take as needed, as as interested, sort of like available on demand to cover various topics. That's something that I really want to do. My challenge right now is balancing my research role at Virginia Tech with a lot of book research trips that take me away for 10 days to 14 days at a time every couple months to access birding consulting and training and and projects there. Another thing that I'm looking forward to doing is developing an ebook that someone could download from the Access Birding website about signage. There's so many different (laughs) examples, uh, some great, some less great, of interpretive signage, you know, that like tells you about the landscape or the trees or whatever when you're on a trail or the maps at trailheads or other signage that might be out in natural spaces. And I don't think I've ever seen a sign that got everything right as far as I'm concerned, as far as what disabled birders have told me and what I know is important 
to include. I've seen a couple that were really good, but they're always sort of missing just like this last little bit. And so I'm looking forward to developing this ebook that land managers and interpreters and so on could buy straight from the Access Birding website and have like a solid resource to help them in their design process for upcoming signage or signage modifications that they're, they're working on. That'll be really good. I always like the idea of like the on-demand like stuff for people who are looking like for the right now, just in the meantime, it's probably gonna be something that's I'm sure really helpful to a lot of different organizations. Yeah. And and if we did a consulting session, I, I can talk through all of that stuff with yeah. them, but this ebook would have lots of photos of examples of like, do this, don't do that. <laughs> this bit's not that great. And here's why that sort of goes a bit beyond the scope of the summary report that I would provide a consulting client after our initial consulting session. So this would be a complimentary resource to consulting, or maybe they only want that bit. Maybe they wouldn't even consult with me, but this would be a, a resource to help them go forwards with confidence. Yeah, that sounds like a great plan. And I'm excited to see all of the great work that I'm sure you'll continue to do through access birding, through other avenues with your research and everything. I want to thank you so much for being here with us today, for telling us all about accessible and inclusive birding and your work. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, thank you. And hey, another thing that I am looking forward to doing in the future is helping create more of that disability representation in the birding community. There's a soft launch right now, as of yesterday, actually, as we record this, of some t-shirts. There's going to be stickers coming, maybe even patches of a design that says we all deserve to access birding. And it's got part of the access birding logo on it, which has a non-gender specific silhouette of someone seated in a manual wheelchair under a tree looking through binoculars at birds and I hope that that will speak to birders who are interested in this social justice side of things I mean we all do whether we use a wheelchair whether we don't whether we use a wheelchair sometimes whether we're white or black or queer or female or young or older like it doesn't matter we should all be able to enjoy birds and and get out in nature if, if we want to and so that is a little bit of like gentle advocacy I hope that just wearing these shirts around at parks and in the community folks will be like oh yeah of course there could be disabled birders if they don't know anyone already who's a disabled birder like just that representation can help just flick that switch of like who is a birder and who is not and who should be in outdoor spaces and who are we not seeing here and why is that and is there something we can change about that you know so that's that's another thing it's not consulting or training but it's part of this overall effort so there's a soft launch right now if 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 you happen to be interested in such a product <laughs> accessbirding.com and there's a the button for the store and it'll take you to that but I hope that that will hit home with a few folks in the birding community. Oh yeah, I'm sure. And I'll make sure for our listeners to link that. I'll link, obviously I'm going to link the website directly in the show notes, but I will also put the direct link to that store as well, because that's really great for awareness purposes, just bringing awareness to the issues. I love that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assembling Inclusion podcast. I hope the information in this episode taught you something new gave you a new idea, or showcase a new perspective. If you liked the episode, feel free to leave us a review or comment. If you have a recommendation for an individual or an organization who would make a great guest, you can message us on Twitter or Instagram, or send us an email at assemblinginclusion at gmail.com. See you next time.